36, 16 to 37, 28. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people. And yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name which you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle, you cl I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited 
then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel and do this for them. I will make them as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O oh, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. 
son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, Ephraim stick, belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. When your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of all of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick, making them a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them and they will never again be two nations or to be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offences, for I will save them from all their sinful blacksiding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them and they will ha all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. James will now come and explain this reading of God's word to us. Well, in spite of technical difficulties, did a great job, so thank you. But before we look further at this uh, passage together, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, with please we pray, bless us this morning as we look at your word. May your spirit help us to understand it and be blessed by it as we reflect on this amazing trajectory of your purposes, progressively revealed throughout the Bible storyline. And as we plot that trajectory further today, uh, may we be encouraged as we see all of your promises being fulfilled, and yes, in Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Uh, well, welcome back to our overview. Um, we've been seeing that Israel is ex has experienced God's terrible, uh, but just punishment for her sin. Uh, the whole nation has been divided, defeated, and destroyed. Uh, here again, we have this diagram, which uh, many people said last week was very helpful. 
Uh, there, of course, is the division of the kingdom. Uh, and maybe uh, it was a very timely uh, mention which Angela made of the modern-day equivalent of the division of the Korean Peninsula uh, on its 50th anniversary. Uh, such was the trauma uh, and the effects of the division of the nation of Israel, never to recover again. And here, of course, we saw was the line of the ten tribes in the north, which was called the Kingdom of Israel, who ultimately uh, are annihilated, they're deported, they lose their identity uh, in 722 BC, when here they get deported by the Assyrians and intermixed with uh, other people groups and intermarried, and they lose their identity, and effectively uh, that is the end of those ten tribes. And the two tribes in the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, Solduron, uh, but uh, in the end, they fare no better. Uh, in the end, they are overwhelmed because of their sin. Uh, God's judgment comes on them, and they're overwhelmed by the Babylonian army uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar, and they are progressively deported in two phases uh, to Babylon. And we see here um, the prophets. There's Isaiah, who ministered um, at the time of the Assyrian deportation, but he was ministering to the, uh, the southern two tribes of Judah. But here's Ezekiel, who we're looking at today. He's actually in Babylon, uh, ministering to those in exile there. Uh, what we see is after the fall of Jerusalem, uh, Ezekiel changes the focus of his message. Uh, he begins to outline the glorious plans that God has in store for his people. And his message is one of restoration beyond God's judgment. And by way of recap, thus far, we have seen that God is pledging to remove the seemingly insurmountable obstacles that block the path to his people experiencing his blessing. Uh, we saw last week that God will deal with the problems of his people's enemies without and enemies within. Uh, Israel's external enemies will be destroyed and her bad leadership will be replaced by God himself. And he is, uh, the shepherd king will be the one who replaces these bad leaders. Uh, we've seen, of course, this shepherd king is none other, none other than the king from the line of David, uh, promised back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And his rule and his reign will finally bring God's peace and blessing to his people. And we've seen, of course, the blessing that is described has resonated so well with all that was promised to Abraham. Uh, God's people living in God's place, once again under God's good rule and blessing. What we've been seeing is it's the promise of a full-blown reversal of the curse of the fall. But bad leaders and external enemies are not the only problems that God has to deal with. And through Ezekiel's message, God now proceeds to promise tackling three more barriers to his blessing. That's sin, death, and division. And let's look at each of those in turn. So firstly, God is promising to deal with sin, and he's saying that he will cleanse his people from their sin. What we're seeing here is at last we have a specific promise that the great problem of sin will finally be solved. And furthermore, we are going to be told how it will be solved. Where humans have repeatedly failed to stop sinning, God himself will deal with the problem. Uh, note how many times the phrase, I will, occurs as we look together at chapter 36, verse 25 onwards. This is what God says. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Uh, Do you see? God will cleanse his people from their sins. Uh, The language used is borrowed from the temple. Uh, It was through the washing with water that the priests were symbolically cleansed so they could approach the altar and not die. But now God will sprinkle clean water on his people to cleanse them from their sins. And God will enable his people to finally obey his commands. How? By giving them new hearts and by giving them his spirit. When is this fulfilled? Well, true, the New Testament believer has been given the Spirit. And that true, the Spirit gives us a new heart. We are born again. And the Spirit does help us to battle with sin. But of course, we are not yet sinless. If you like, we are works in progress. Uh, We have not yet reached our goal. Really, the fulfillment of this promise has to be in the new creation. Then, through the Spirit's inner enlivening and cleansing, we will be, to quote again, moved to follow God's decrees and careful to keep his laws. It's in the new creation that we will finally enjoy life in sinless perfection. Hallelujah. 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 Oh, thank goodness for that. It is good news. Praise the Lord. So that is what we look forward to. And that is the amazing fulfillment of this promise to be sprinkled and cleansed and to have the Spirit dwell within. Uh, the second problem which God promises to deal with here is death. Uh, God will bring his people back to life. Uh, Ezekiel is giving this creepy vision of a valley full of bleached white bones of the slain. But at God's command, they start to rattle, and they move, and they come together. Maybe it's just as well our kids left before we had the Bible reading. They may not sleep tonight. Uh, Sinews and skin form on them, and finally life is breathed into these lifeless bodies. And then God proceeds to explain the significance of his vision. Uh, Chapter 37, verse 11. Then he said to me, uh, that is God to Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And then you, my people, You will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up out from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. And then you will know 
that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. The question is, what is God promising when he says that he will restore Israel back to life? Uh, What does he mean by life? Well, I think it's fair to say that there are three senses in which the term is used, and they all lead to the same conclusion. Uh, Firstly, uh, life is a metaphor for bringing the nation back from exile. Uh, Israel, if you notice, is described as being cut off. And if you also notice, there is the promise of a return to the land. Uh, The new life, therefore, pledged is just a graphic way of describing the rescue from exile. But it's secondly also true to say that life is used here in the sense of physical resurrection. Uh, This prophecy was first delivered to a people traumatized by a massive loss of life. Uh, the wages of sin, had weighed all too heavily upon them. Remember, the siege of Jerusalem had produced a huge body count. And yet now God talks of opening their graves and bringing his people up from them. When you think about it, it actually does stand to reason. Uh, The wages of sin is death. And yet if God is to resolve the problem of sin then he will also fix the problem of death at the same time. If you like, it will be two for the price of one. But there is a third sense in which life is used here. Life here can also said to be referred to the new spiritual life, a new heart that obeys God, and hence the stress on the role of the Spirit in the promised life. What's on offer is not just life like it was before the exile, It will be on a completely different plane. It will be sinless. Do you see how those three all wonderfully mesh together? Uh, Actually, what we see is that what is being promised is a return from exile to an Eden-like existence. And it will be a totally different life. Physical death will be defeated. God's people will obey him instead of sinning against him. God is pledging a full reversal of what went wrong at the fall. And so the third problem uh, which God promises to deal with here is not just sin and not just death, but finally division. God promises he will reunite his people under one king. If you recall, God had promised Abraham that his descendants would be a great nation, dwelling in harmony in his land. And yet, of course, that mantle of greatness had started to slip with the division of the nation of Israel after Solomon's reign. And after division, deportation had ultimately followed. That split had been a catastrophic wound from which the nation had never recovered. And therefore, if God is to keep his promise, he will need to reunite his people. And so, using the metaphor of joining two sticks, God promises to one day reunify his divided, scattered people. 
and their reunification will be under the king from the line of David. He is the one who will reign over all of God's reunified people. Uh, chapter 37, verse 22. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. So when was this prophecy fulfilled? If you remember, um, a couple of years ago, we had a, an amazing uh, friendship. We struck up a friendship with um, those two uh, ladies from the Mormon church, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, uh, Sister Shen and Sister Wilson, and they came along to our Christmas celebration. Uh, Tracy and myself met with them over several months, and uh, we had a wonderful dialogue with them about uh, what they believed, but also uh, what we believed and what the, uh, the Bible taught. It was an interesting that in establishing a basis for dialogue, uh, they had, it seemed, two sources of authority. They accepted the Bible, and particularly the King James Version. And so if you're ever talking to, to Mormons about uh, their faith, you can actually use the King James Bible. Uh, they accept that as uh, God's word, as an authority for what uh, they believe and for life. But they have the second authority, which is, of course, the Book of Mormon. And we were curious, on what basis do you say that the Book of Mormon is authoritative? And to our surprise, uh, they went to this passage in Ezekiel. And they said, well, it talks there of two sticks. And one stick is the Bible, and the other stick is the Book of Mormon. And it's on that basis that these two sources of authority are authoritative. We were scratching our head and going, really? Uh, but what about, what does this mean even in the context of the letter of Ezekiel? Uh, it's talking about the reunification of the division of the nation of Israel. Uh, but what about the bigger context of the Bible? Uh, what does the New Testament say about what this passage truly means? And so uh, we had a very interesting dialogue with them. Uh, it was a very interesting example and a discussion which uh, revolved around, well, what are our sources of authority and how should we interpret a passage of the Bible? And of course we know that the correct way to interpret any passage is its immediate context, in this case in Ezekiel, but also in the wider context of the whole Bible. And so, uh, what does the wider context of the whole Bible make clear? When we get to the New Testament, we find that ultimately the promises that God makes in the Old Testament don't refer to the physical descendants of Abraham. Rather, of course, all the promises refer to Abraham's spiritual descendants. All those who, like Abraham, put their faith in God's promises. And the people of God are ultimately, of course, not the physical nation of Israel, but the spiritual nation of the New Testament church. And the reunification of God's people is not between the northern and southern kingdom of Israel and Judah. Rather, it's the reunification of Jew and Gentile into one people under the reign of Christ, the king from the David's line. Of course, it is Christ who draws together a people unified by their faith in and their allegiance to him. And it is Christ who draws people both from the Jews and the Gentiles to form one reunified people, his church. And we see this wonderfully brought together in that passage in Ephesians 2 verse 14. It says this, 
For he, that is Christ, himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, that is the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. There is the glorious fulfillment of that prophet of Isaiah of the two sticks. God joining together two sticks into one unified nation. And finally, as we pull it all together, not only does Ezekiel reveal what God will do, but also why he will do it. Uh, did you notice that each of the three prophecies stresses that God is at the center of everything? And what are we told is the goal of all that God does? What is his primary motive for his saving action? Did you notice? It's his glory. Chapter 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Generally, we think today that God saves people because he loves them or because he is being faithful to his promises. Uh, both of those motives are true, but they are not God's primary motive for saving people. At the very heart of why God acts to save is the concern for his honor and for his glory. And if we reflect on this, we realize that this is not actually breaking news. We've seen this before. God's concern for his glory was one of the key motivations behind his original rescue of the nation of Israel from Egypt. Exodus 9, verse 13 onwards. This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Uh, this is the message of Moses to uh, Pharaoh. Let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that I would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose so that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. There is God's heart for his glory. And it remains the key motivation for God saving people throughout the Old Testament. When we get to the prophet Isaiah, the message is the same. Isaiah 52, verse 10. 
Uh, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. You see, God's great concern is that everyone, that is the whole world, should acknowledge him to be God and should turn to him and stop sinning. God's emphasis on his own glory and his name being honored might tempt us to think that God is being egocentric. But when you think about it, egocentricity is thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Is it possible for God to think of himself more highly than he ought? After all, God is the creator of all things, and all things have their meaning located in him. And God is the rightful ruler over all. Uh, to deny this is the central sin from which all other sins spring. And that is what happened in Eden. And hence, really, it stands to reason that if God is to reverse the effects of the fall, the restoration of his glory and his honor will have to come as central. Uh, rather than being surprising, it's actually perfectly logical. So how does this apply to us today? Uh, we actually live in a world full of people who think that the center of the universe is them. And of course it is the result of the fall. And yet, when we look at our own hearts as Christians, what do we see? Uh, don't we also see that same natural sinful tendency to think of ourselves as at the center of the universe. Uh, let me ask you a few diagnostic questions, which are put to you as well as to me. How often do we find that our goals in life are primarily about seeking our satisfaction? How often do we find that our hopes and aspirations are ultimately rooted in our own pleasure? Or to ask the question another way, uh, to what extent do we see the desire for God's glory and honor as infusing the passions and hopes of our hearts? Uh, what about our motives for sharing the good news of Jesus with others or even helping Christians to remain faithful to Christ? Uh, when I look at my own heart, I see that at best I am often primarily driven by, at best, a love for them and a fear for the lest they go to hell. But how often am I driven primarily by a desire for God's glory? Uh, if we're honest, the motivations of our hearts fall far short of seeking God's glory and God's honor as a primary drive and passion. And if we are to change, it will have to be a work of God in our hearts and lives. Such a change will only come if we truly grieve our cool-heartedness and cry out to God, please change me through your spirit. Transform me anew. If there is one thing that becomes increasingly clear as we move along the Bible storyline, it is this. We cannot save ourselves. We are hopelessly enmeshed in our bondage to sin and our bondage to death. 
In fact, the New Testament concurs with Ezekiel's vision of God's people. Uh, Without God, we are nothing more than white, bleached bones in a valley. We are dead in our sins. We are lifeless. Uh, Speaking about the Ephesian Christians before they came to faith in Christ, the Apostle Paul describes them in the following terms in Ephesians 2 verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. And as Jesus says to Nicodemus, our greatest need is to be born again. Our hearts need to be made alive. And unless we are born again, we will never enter the kingdom of God. And of course, the only way that a dead person can possibly be made alive is by the hand of God. The God who breathed life into Adam and Eve must also now breathe life into the lifeless souls of his people. And this is what God does for us in Christ. Continuing in Ephesians 2 verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And because we can already see that God has done the miracle of granting life to our lifeless souls, it means we can also be confident that one day God will give life to our lifeless bodies when they lie in the grave. We can look forward to that day when Christ will return and he will open the graves and bring his people up from them. And it will be all of God and none of us. What was the repeated refrain in Ezekiel 36? God says, I will. I've been very much enjoying listening to the teaching of R.C. Sproul. He's got a website and a ministry which is called Ligonier Ministries. You can get the app, actually. You can download it. Or you can go online uh, to the website of uh, ligonier.org. And uh, I've been looking in recently about, um, and very much enjoying and finding beneficial, uh, he's got a section called Daily Video. And you can either listen with video or just audio. But he's got a whole series of talks there on the uh, solace, which is, of course, uh, the heart of Reformed theology and was the cry of the Reformers. Uh, the, that is, the, the solar, uh, we are saved by uh, Grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. And he's got a wonderful series of talks there on the solas. And it does a very good job also of engaging with uh, Roman Catholic uh, theology. And of course the point is that uh, even the faith we have, the saving faith we have, is a gift of God which he gives to us. Even our faith is not a work. It is all done by God. The point is this. The more that we see that our rescue depends on God alone, the more we will be stirred to gratitude for all that God has done for us. The more that we will sing to the praise of his glory. As in Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 6. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus in accordance with the pleasure, his pleasure and will, 
Why? To the praise of its glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that you said in Ezekiel that you would repeatedly, you will, you will do this for us. You would save us from sin, death, and division. You would address those intractable problems which only you could address. And we thank you that you've done that through Christ, and ultimately you will do that when Christ returns, when you will finish the job. Help us, therefore, to live by people uh, as people who have faith in Christ uh, and who look forward to that day. Help us to live as people who increasingly have hearts which desire your glory and your honor above all else. And may that stir us to serve you, therefore. May that be the fire which ignites our engine, which keeps us going until we reach glory. Amen.